And some of my water monitors then are cohab as well. Uh, and then obviously the capuchin monkeys, they are quite dominant. And they would be quite territorial. So they just live by themselves. You couldn't put anything in with them. You put an iguana in with them, they would eat it. Um, so they, really? they, 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 would, they would eat an iguana? They would eat an iguana, yeah. They're, they actually catch birds. Every now and again, birds will come into their enclosure. And if they don't get away quick enough, they will work together and they will catch the birds straight out of the air and eat wow. the birds. Um, you know, so they're quite uh, they're quite fierce. Um, they're absolutely amazing. They are so, so, so smart and intelligent and they like to work things out. They obviously need a lot of stimulation to keep them, obviously, uh, you know, mentally uh, well looked after that way, but amazing, amazing species. Welcome back to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Today, I'm speaking with Dougie Smith. If you're somebody who is on Facebook, especially in the Advancing Herpetological Husbandry page or Giant Leaps in Giant Husbandry Facebook page, you'll be familiar with Dougie. He also is the owner and operator of Jurassic Ark Encounters. You may be familiar with him on Instagram. Dougie is a big species keeper. He keeps many different monitors and mainly he focuses on reticulated pythons. I don't know if that's his main focus, but that's what he has a lot of. And we discuss how to keep these animals successfully and and what Dougie does to keep them successfully. He has these incredible enclosures. He's basically converted his backyard to these outdoor, they're not outdoor enclosures, they're outside, but they're essentially these giant sheds that he's built, enclosures, walk-in enclosures for many of his different snake species as well as his monitor species. So he talks about how he builds those and what he puts in them to make sure the animals are healthy and thriving and the issues that we see in the hobby with keeping large animals and whether or not they should be kept or, or who should be keeping them. I've talked about this all the time, but potentially these are not the best animals for people to be keeping privately. And so we discussed that and Dougie talks about how to have success with them if you are going to keep them. And also the commitment that these giant species come with because many people buy them as a small two foot snake at the reptile expo. And it's really hard to contemplate or it's hard to conceive what that commitment looks like down the road. So this is a great option. If you're somebody who's looking at getting a giant species, this is an absolute must listen for you. Or if you're someone like myself that just admires giant keepers, then this is a great episode for you to listen to as well. Before we jump in, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. There you'll find the show notes for all the episodes that have been recorded. You'll also find the shows for the the latest ep- the latest podcast that's been added to the Animals at Home Network. That's the Reptiles and Research Podcast by Liam Sinclair and Ellie Hills. That's there as well. And by the way, I recorded a really fun podcast last week with Bill Strand from the Reptile Entrepreneur Podcast. Well, last week, my time. By the time you're listening to this, it'll be a few weeks ago. And it was great. We talk about the podcast. We talk about the difference between YouTubing and podcasting. And I, I think it's some... I lay out some really good advice, in my opinion, things that I've learned along the years. So if you're somebody that's been kind of wondering if you should start jumping into the content creation world, whether or not starting a YouTube channel or a podcast, I I highly recommend listening to that podcast. I'll put it in the show notes and and you can take a look. Or if you just Google Reptile Entrepreneur Podcast, you'll find it. And uh, I hope I can motivate a few of you to join the content creation side because we need more of us out there. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you can head to patreon.com slash animals at home. You can join us for as little as $3 a month. You'll have access to the Discord channel as well as early access to episodes. And again, it really does help me afford to produce the show. I do pay an editor to edit the show, which costs me about $500 a month. So I 
do really appreciate when I do have people that are supporting me that way. But you can also just support by sharing the podcast on any social media platform or head to our sponsor, customreptilehabitat.com. You can find the affiliate link in the show notes or the YouTube description. If you do make a purchase after clicking on that link, a small commission does come back to me at no extra cost to you. And I think that's it. Let's jump into the episode. Enjoy this conversation about keeping giant species with Dougie Smith. Awesome. Well, Dougie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for doing this. Thank you very much, Dylan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I always see you making posts on Facebook. You're you're pretty active in Facebook on both advancing herpetological husbandry as well as uh, giant. What's that Facebook group called again? Giant leaps, right? Giant uh, leaps. Yep. And uh, yep. Giant leaps and advancing herpes husbandry. So it is. It's the uh, sister group of the AHH group. Right. Yeah. And so I see you posting in there all the time. You have beautiful pictures, amazing enclosures and amazing animals and pretty much always sparks off a, a bunch of conversation underneath. So I'm super excited to kind of get into that. So why, why don't we just start with how, how did you get into keeping reptiles in the first place? Were you always an animal person and then gravitate towards reptiles or how did that work? Uh, yeah, no, d- definitely. Um, so my father is a nature photographer and obviously he's been doing that a long time prior to me even being born. So uh, he would have always had an interest in animals. And then my mom would have always had an interest in animals as well. So from obviously being born and <clears throat> growing up, it started an interest very, very early on. Um, my fascination with reptiles probably began when I was five. I was on a holiday in Corfu. And I was obviously, as kids do, playing down near the beach and over near stony crevices. And there was, uh, I'm not too sure, obviously, because of the age I was, but there was a snake down there. That sparked my interest and I was trying to find. Uh, subsequently, the snake, obviously, when I'd got it cornered, went into a bit of a hole and I thought I'd lost it at that point, but uh, it popped back out right behind me and almost bit me. Now, I was called up the steps quite uh, frantically by my parents. And it turned out, obviously, that snake was, uh, I believe, a type of venomous snake. I can't remember for the life of me what it was, but that sort of sparked my interest off then, you know, in, in reptiles. And from I was five, you could say that I always wanted you know, a snake. I used to count out my money box and stuff to obviously try and uh, bribe or basically blackmail my parents into getting me one, but it didn't happen. Uh, I got my first reptile then when I turned 10. I had to prove between five and 10 that I could be responsible and that I had seen enough snakes and stuff between the likes of zoos and, you know, animal petting farms, stuff like that, where I was confident in holding them and that I wasn't afraid. And, you know, that proved to my parents that the animals that I had in between, you know, like hamsters, fish, that I was willing to put in the effort and, you know, and take care of them and um, before they would obviously let me get into something like a reptile. So I got my first reptile when I was 10. Uh, was a corn snake, obviously, um, and your normal Carolina-style corn snake. Um, nothing too exciting, but great beginner species, great animal to learn with. Got it as a baby, uh, and uh, it sort of went from there. I'm now 32, so we're looking at, what, 22 years later, um, and this is where we've ended up now with quite a menagerie as such. But, yeah, first animal was a corn snake, Got it in a reptile shop in Belfast over here in Ireland. And even way back then, obviously, when I got that, that was the year 2000. Um, and, you know, even back then, that reptile shop was obviously quite out in the forefront because they had a no policy on selling giant species at that point. They did stock some giant species, um, such as your Burmese, the very odd retic, uh, and uh, the likes of your odd anaconda and green iguanas, obviously. And those were animals that had been got by the public back then got to a certain size and then were given in to them at that point, obviously care for. So, you know, even back then, back that far, you know, there was already certain shops that were already out ahead that were, you know, not selling giant species, or if they were, they were limiting who could, you know, have them 
and who and who could obviously deal with them properly. But back then, obviously, they caught my eye as a young ten-year-old. You know, iguanas, um, big snakes, stuff like that, just absolutely fascinated me. So is that what originally got you into looking at those animals? Because when you think about the past, green iguanas and berms were definitely way more popular than they should have been. So I could see why, you know, pet stores or, you know, reptile shops are starting to, you know, pull away from that even back then. But was it those experiences, like seeing those maybe rescues or or animals that had been returned to the stores that really got your, piqued your interest for large species? I would say, yeah, it definitely played played a big role in it. Um, You know, I was always fascinated just, it wasn't even so much by their size, but, you know, at that size, the colors in them at times, obviously green iguanas can be quite, you know, spectacular looking, even your normal basic green iguana that hasn't got any heads in it or hasn't got any morphs put into it as well. You know, your normal green iguana can be absolutely stunning, especially when the males in breeding season and when they're cured for right, the proper humidity and heat, you know, they look absolutely fantastic. So, you know, for me at that age, um, yeah, the, the bigger species really took my fascination for more their elegance, you know, how they looked. Um, and as I say, I, I don't know, I, I still to this day, I probably can't pinpoint it. And then obviously from being 10 and starting to move upwards in years, I would have been a big fan of watching certain nature documentaries on TV involving the giant species. And obviously at that age, um, Steve Irwin was very popular with the Crocodile Hunter Diaries and stuff like that. And again, you would have got your chance to see some of the bigger species in it, along with Austin Stevens, Mark O'Shea, people like that, who would have done different sort of specials, you know, particularly focusing on the giant species. So that again intrigued me and sort of furthered my interest, you know, and that's the avenue that I wanted to go. That's, that's the sort of species that I wanted to keep. So what species did you end up getting first? Like, tell me about the very first giant species <laughs> that you got. So I got... It's probably now you wouldn't class it as a giant, but for me, it was a good way of leading into the giant. So when I was 14, I had already at this stage, I had a corn snake. I had a couple of royal pythons. Uh, I had started venturing into animals like bearded dragons. Um, I had a boss monitor then as well. And <clears throat> my jump then at 14 was to go from corn snakes and royals uh, into uh, a boa constrictor. Now, I didn't get the boa as a baby. Uh, I went back again to that same pe- uh, pet shop, City Reptiles in Belfast, and I had been in there a couple of times, and they had let me work with, you know, larger boas, uh, because obviously I was still only 14, my mum was in with me, and parental consent, etc., to do that, and, uh, you know, they obviously sort of helped nurture my enthusiasm, watched me working with some of the larger boas, and it ended up then I took a, a six-foot meal on that was brought in as a, a rehome that the person didn't want anymore, so I'd done a bit of work with it. And then they eventually then allowed me at 14 then later on to, to take that animal on. So that was probably my first, you know, big snake effectively. Um, and then going into obviously the true giant species. Uh, at 15 then I got my first Burmese python. Uh, I got it from uh, a baby. It was a wild type. I always, even at that age, always preferred the natural locales and the wild colors over the genetic morphs and stuff on the market. Um, so the Burmese that I got when I was 15 obviously was a wild type. And uh, it was a male and I got it from a baby and, you know, I worked my way with it, raising it up. And that, that was probably my first proper giant species was a Burmese. Interesting. And so at, at that time, what, what sort of setup did you have? I mean, obviously, if you're getting it as a, as a young a baby or a, sort of a neonate, it's pretty small still. But then how, how did your setups expand? Because even back then, maybe things were a lot smaller. Yeah. So back then, um, Certain pet shops, including the one that I went to, they had a mantra of if you put a certain size, you know, small snake or baby snake effectively in too big of an enclosure, they had this 
idea that it would frighten the animal yeah. and that the animal then at that point, you know, wouldn't eat, would be stressed, it would cause welfare implications. So back then you were always sort you were always sort of at that point told to uh, basically go a smaller tank. And then as the animal grew up your up your enclosure size. Um, when I got my boa constrictor, obviously it was six feet. So the vivarium that I initially had it in back then was a six by two by two. Um, and I ended up then, it was converted at that point into, it was sort of like a, it was like a big, long wooden chest um, that I converted in it. And that ended up working out, I think, nearly seven feet long by three foot tall by two and a half feet wide. So that was the biggest enclosure I'd done back then. And actually when I was that age, I, I pocket money and stuff and with the help of mum for Christmas, um, I got a joiner to build me that. Uh, Burmese python, got as a baby, as a baby, it went straight into a four by two by two. Um, and then as it started to grow, uh, I got it up. I think the biggest div I got it up to back then um, was eight feet long by two foot by two foot. Um, and then I'd obviously quite a lot during the week. So, I mean, you know, you know yourself as, you know, husbandry has been going on throughout the years, you know, so is knowledge, mm -hmm. so is experience. And there's a lot more now, especially with social media platforms where there's more access to information out there about how to better keep these animals. Um, you know, back then, I thought I did quite well looking back now mm -hmm. compared to what some of them were kept in. And, you know, my, my goal back then has been the same as it is now. Even when I was a teenager, I always enjoyed going out to the local woods, collecting branches, collecting stuff that had moss over it. You know, the more natural, the dirtier looking, the better. Um, natural bark. I never, ever used newspaper ever. Um, and I never used any of the fake substrates. I always went for proper garden bark or soil and I always love I always love leaf litter even as a young kid I always loved leaves so I always love putting leaves in tanks um, so I always try to keep as naturally looking as possible and you know for me I thought nothing better than walking into my bedroom and then subsequently I took over the spare bedroom in my house when I was a teenager for the rest of my collection so I love better nothing better than walking into both of those rooms and seeing vivariums all lit up with like natural looking branches and stuff in it to look like their own little ecosystems back mm -hmm. then yeah, no, that that makes sense, and it it probably is is a good foundation for where you're keeping now. Like the enclosures that you have now are, are pretty amazing, so it makes sense that you kind of already had that mindset as you were, when you were younger. So why don't you just quickly list off what you're keeping right now? How what what do you have in your collection? Uh, so I have quite a I have quite a bit. Um, I have somewhere probably in the region of I would say maybe close to seventy animals. Um. And obviously, 70 at times maybe doesn't sound a lot when you consider certain keepers will keep maybe, you know, 60 or 70 snakes quite easily, but they're obviously quite small and they're either racked or stacked. Um, but for me, most of my stuff, I mean, the smallest snake that I currently have at present is a Mexican Black King snake. That's the, that's the, that's the smallest snake that I have, and it's obviously quite young. That's the only species of snake that I have, obviously, other than uh, a young boa, which is my son's, and uh, a couple of green anacondas. That is the only species there. The only species that I have and everything else is particularly the pythons and the Burmese. So at the minute I've got particularly the pythons, I have probably somewhere in the region of probably uh, coming up to probably about 20 particularly the pythons. And they range in sizes, obviously from uh, sort of fresh baby size. Uh, I've got a couple of babies there that I got off a good friend of mine, um, right up to the biggest one that I have, which would be Daisy. Uh, Daisy, you'll probably have seen on Facebook and stuff before. Daisy is 21 feet. She was last measured at and she weighs a little over 11 stone um so she's a big animal 
um, believe she is currently the biggest over here in Ireland. There's not anything that's, you know, came close to her or has passed her. Um, I also have then uh, several iguanas um, ranging in different colorations from your normal standard green to obviously a blue morph. And I have a red morph in there as well. Uh, I have a few different monitor species. So I would have black throat monitors, white throat monitor. Uh, I have, uh, I think at the minute, I, need a, I have about six Asian water monitors ranging again from smaller specimens right up to my biggest specimen, which is uh, six foot six. Um, and then obviously something that probably people don't see as much because I tend to post a lot more to do with the snakes and the lizards is I have tortoises in as well. So I have a red footed tortoise. I have a Herman's tortoise. I have a Greek spur thigh tortoise. I also have a sulcata tortoise that is uh, probably just over five stone at the moment, uh, about 12 years old and growing obviously quite rapidly. Uh, I have several different uh, turtles, obviously your red-eared slider, your yellow belly slider. I have an alligator snapping turtle, quite a, a decent enough size specimen that I recently acquired there from a good friend. I uh, bought it off him down in uh, South of Ireland. Uh, I'm just trying to take you through what else we have. Obviously, I have a couple of green anacondas, uh, Burmese python. Um, and yeah, probably yeah, that likes your other stuff like uh, bearded dragons. I have several different types of chameleon. Um, and yeah, that's probably, and then obviously I've got my primates. I keep a, a collection of over here, they're on the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. Um, so I have ringtail lemurs, which obviously pretty much everybody sees at zoos when they go to. Uh, and then I have black cap capuchin monkeys or capuchin monkeys is sometimes what they're referred to as over in America, over in the States, or even maybe where the likes of you are yourself in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think that's it. After that, I have obviously couple of huskies and a wife and two little boys obviously <laughs> they're probably the most demanding yeah that is amazing so how are you actually caring for all of this is this so what is the space that you're keeping these animals in look like i mean you're in a home you have i know you have you have some stuff what it seems like outside or maybe in an outbuilding how, how are you managing all of this so um <clears throat> yeah you're right we obviously live uh live in a house a uh, decent enough sized garden if it was bigger uh, I would probably be able to do a lot more with it and I would have a lot of few ideas in my head that I would like to do. Um, presently, other than myself, the two boys and the wife, um, and our small one of our small dogs, nothing else actually lives in the house, believe it or not. We have no vivariums inside our house. Uh, our garage, uh, it's converted and basically has uh, custom enclosures as well as vivariums stacked from the floor right up to the ceiling. Uh, so the stuff on the top, up where the ceiling is, is maybe setting about nine feet up, 10 feet up off the floor. So if you use a step ladder to get up, that would be the smaller sort of stuff up high. Um, uh, that house is obviously some of the smaller stuff. And then there's a couple of sort of, you know, decent size, uh, custom-made uh, larger vivariums in there that are in the region of maybe 11 and a half feet and, you know, sort of 12 feet long. Uh, and then after that, all the other of my collection, all the other big, the bigger, bigger stuff. Um, basically, I have a number of, uh, custom custom built sheds basically wooden sheds that from the outside might look like a wooden shed um, but all of those sheds are all fully insulated they are thermostatically controlled and um, with several thermostats in there that link up to uh, several high wattage heaters that effectively heat the whole enclosure and um, that you only need maybe one or two basking lamps as such to actually provide maybe a bit of a basking area but they will actually heat the enclosure from the floor up um, they're so powerful and the heat is quite well in there that the actual ponds in some of them, I don't actually need to use 
uh, I don't actually need to use heaters anymore for the ponds. Mm. The, the air temperature in there is enough to keep the pond temperatures from the region of sort of 27 to 29 degrees. Um, so I have different sheds that are, you know, go around my property. Uh, and then we have designed our garden to walk up through and meander through some of them. Uh, and each of those sheds obviously, you know, contains different animals in it. You've got uh, our largest water monitor in one of them, some of our smaller water monitors in another one. Um, we have several reticulated python walk-ins that we have a smaller one that keeps our smaller giants, the smaller-ish ones. And then we have the biggest reticulated python walk-in that keeps the biggest ones that we have. Uh, and then we have another uh, walk-in reticulated python enclosure in the garage that houses our biggest male. He's obviously on his own. Um, <clears throat> and then we have another walk-in that houses our sulcata tortoise and one that houses obviously our ringtail lemurs. And obviously people can see on the various groups on Facebook, uh, the giant leaps and advancing herpetological husbandry and stuff that I obviously, you know, I'm known for doing a lot of cohabs. Um, some of the cohabs obviously people maybe have never thought of before. Strictly speaking, I'll be honest, some of them aren't actually continental specific where you would find these animals in the same area in the wild. But the animals themselves have very similar, you know, captive husbandry requirements where they need similar temperatures and similar humidity, stuff like that. So it does work, even though they don't come from the same part of the world. So like my iguanas would live in amongst my ringtail lemurs. And my sulcata tortoise shares an area with them as well where he can meander in and out and go between the areas too. Um, and then obviously I have alligator snapping turtle, um, which probably raised a few eyebrows, to be honest, in with my largest water monitor. Um, I cohab my female retics across different enclosures. Um, and some of my water monitors then are cohabbed as well. Uh, and then obviously the capuchin monkeys, they are quite dominant. Uh, they would be quite territorial. So they just live by themselves. You couldn't put anything in with them. You put an iguana in with them, they would eat it. Um, so they, really? they, they, they would, they would eat an iguana? They would eat an iguana, yeah. They're, they actually catch birds. Every now and again, birds will come into their enclosure. And if they don't get away quick enough, they will work together and they will catch the birds straight out of the air and eat wow. the birds. Um, you know, so they're quite uh, they're quite fierce. Um, they're absolutely amazing. They are so, so, so smart and intelligent. And they like to work things out. They obviously need a lot of stimulation to keep them, obviously, uh, you know, mentally uh, well looked after that way. But amazing, amazing species. So, yeah, there's quite an oregano on in in my uh, in my back garden as such it's something that I you know I probably will touch on um over the next couple of months I am planning to do now I had asked sort of interest and I am going to start to do YouTube videos um with uh, certain areas of you know going in the enclosures talking about enclosure design uh talking about how some of the specimens are removed how they're worked with how they're maintained uh feeding stuff like that to give people you know more of an idea of you know, what way you can work and deal with these animals in larger enclosures that are quite naturalistic, that have lots of cage furniture. That makes it a lot more harder than taking an animal straight out of an empty viv. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that there will, you know, get people more of an insight and show people as well, you know, that these animals, you know, when they are given space, they do thrive and, and they do enjoy it. Yeah, well, that that's amazing. I mean, it sounds like it's an incredible setup and I know everybody listening will be demanding that you do a YouTube channel so we can see more <laughs> of that more detail. Um, I have uh, many questions that you've unfolded. The first, I'm just trying to think of where I should start. The first was with the with the heat that you were saying in those sheds. What 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 was the heating element? Is that something in the floor you had, or or what was making the air so, temperature so warm? Um, I have been heating outdoor sheds now for probably 14 years. The initial first sheds that I heated were primate related, 
So that gave me a really good basis to work from mm-hmm. and the knowledge prior to them. And I started to do my biggest walk-ins for the reptiles. I sort of had a bit of an understanding about what way it worked. And, you know, I wasn't stabbing in the dark um, because the primates are a wee bit more forgiving and they don't need certain temperatures on the floor, whereas your snakes and stuff will. So what I do, if you can imagine, you have, say, for instance, a square room. And basically, I would put at the far corner of one area of the room, I would put a two kilowatt uh, convector heater. And that would be wired internally through the wall to a thermostat uh, opposite across the room that way. So what it does is the thermostat actually pulls the temperature across the room rather than using the thermostat on the heater because all it will do is fire out heat for so long and heat the bit in front. But if you actually wired internally to a separate wall thermostat like you would have in your house, it actually pulls the heat directly across the room. So you're heating the whole area. And then at the opposite side of that room, across the opposite wall, I'll put another two kilowatt heater. And again, that'll be that'll be wired across then to uh, another uh, individual thermostat. So most of this, most of the enclosures have uh, four thousand watts, you know, burning uh, on thermostats that are at opposite ends to basically pull the heat all through the enclosure. And then with the thick insulation and stuff like that, it, it helps them. I have normally then like a vent installed at one side of the enclosure down lower, and then I'll put a vent across at the other side of the enclosure uh, higher up. So it brings the air flow through and pulls the heat, you know, through as well at the same time. <clears throat> and so I guess through the winter, it's all good. You don't have any major issues with the temperatures outside getting too cold and everything can stay maintained properly. Yeah, so I mean, during the winter, um, I would say winter in Ireland probably doesn't get just as bad as over in Canada yourself. <laughs> yeah. um, but o- over here during the winter, um, <clears throat> our lowest temperatures that we would maybe get would maybe drop maybe to the likes of minus four, minus five. It, oh, it'd be okay. a rare, it would be a rare occurrence for it to drop to maybe you know minus nine. It'd be a very rare occurrence. But even dr- temperatures dropping to minus four, minus five, I can still keep the heat in my enclosures up you know, really, really well, even including the ponds, because obviously water is one of those things that's quite hard to heat unless you've got actually heaters inside the pond. But <clears throat> I've worked out with the heat of the enclosure, if I do it right, that I can actually now heat the ponds just by the air temp. Mm, that's amazing. Your electrical bill must be kind of extreme. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's not good. It's, uh, it's quite dear. <laughs> so it is, but, you know, at the, at the end of the day, these animals, you know, it's my choice to keep them. Mm-hmm. I'll never ask for the public for GoFundMe some stuff to help support them. And during COVID, we never did that. You know, we got it very tight during COVID with the pandemic, and um, because obviously our business and stuff was shut down as well, and it was very very difficult trying to keep the feeding and the heating going. You know, right the whole way through. But my my motto has always been that if the public have to actually, you know, donate money to me, then at that point I'll no longer keep them. You know, mm, yeah. Um, Obviously, we run a business and our business involves animals. And I'm sure you'll probably talk about that later on. But, you know, we get money in from that. But if I have to actually ask the public to donate and the public don't receive anything back out of it, you know, in other words, me providing a service to them or something, then for me, it feels like I'm sort of begging and I'll never do that. And I never want to be in that position. If I am, that's the point then where I will look at probably moving my animals if I could no longer do that. Hopefully, I'm never in that situation. We take measures to try and make sure that never happens. We weathered COVID. We're still going strong and we're paying back off some of the money that we had to obviously, you know, obviously try and find uh, mm-hmm. to keep it going. But, you know, it is what it is. The animals are amazing. They come first pretty much. And, you know, that's that's where we're at effectively. So we're still going well, thankfully. 
so at what point in your giant snake keeping career did you decide that okay these animals need a room basically your own separate building because you know even with the berm and things you'd, you'd started with you were still offering a good size and and for back then it was you know 15 20 years ago it was still a good size but we still see lots of retakes being kept in very small enclosures you know pvc type enclosures and so you know providing it a giant room is still not the norm so at some point you thought okay i need to do this and then even to make matters worse you have 20 of them so you're providing like a couple of these large rooms so how did that philosophy change over time? Um, I guess um, having been looking at zoos, um, I would always try and look at. I would always try and look at good zoos. Not every zoo is good. You have bad zoos, just like you have bad private keepers. Um, likewise, you have good zoos, just like you have great private keepers as well. Um, but I would always look at good zoos and how they're doing things. Um, <clears throat> it's probably something I've always done throughout my keeping career. And sort of tried to emulate it, you know, as best and as practical where I can, um, you know, even if I'm lim- limited sometimes. Um, but I'd always watched how they were expanding their reptile enclosures because zoos years ago, at times the enclosures were small. Even mm-hmm. zoo enclosures are now getting bigger. And um, for reptiles, they were one of the groups of animals that probably didn't receive as much attention, you know, back then as they are starting to now. They're being understood more. There's more. Uh, scientific research done on them. There, there's a lot more inside of the, their lives, you know, despite the fact that sometimes giant snakes, like my giant snakes at times, will lie in the one area, may not move for seven or eight days, but when they do move, they will move and they will climb and they will move around their enclosure. And I guess it is you know, to do with that. Just because they don't do it all the time, you know, doesn't mean that we should then restrict and confine them to, you know, the, the most smallest limited amount of space possible where they can just about try and turn around in their enclosure. We should try and offer them somewhat more. I'm not saying not every enclosure, you know, would have to be like mine. Likewise, not every enclosure would have to be like a zoo's. For me personally, I always think I need to do better. And that's how I, I you know, keep my standards going. I always try and improve. I'm never happy with what I have. I'm never happy with how it is. I always keep trying to further it and make it better and keep improving and not just become, you know, acceptable that yeah what i have is great and that'll do me for the next 30 years i don't need to change it you know i'm already looking ahead of trying to do other things in the years that are coming <clears throat> um so i guess probably i think my first i don't obviously the iguanas i think we're the first ones to go into a walk-in and still to this day my iguanas uh, and the iguanas that i've kept are probably the they're probably the one species of animal that will utilize a large enclosure above everything else even beyond Water monitors, other species of monitors, iguanas will utilize every bit and they will move and they will move around quite a lot. So for my keeping standards, iguanas probably, that's why my iguanas are up in an enclosure. They have an indoor area that is nine foot by seven foot by seven and a half, eight foot tall. And their outdoor area is 36 foot long by 18 foot wide and nine and a half feet tall. And, you know, they will use that. And uh, they're the one species that I think that really deserves a big enclosure because of the exercise and you know how how active they can be. <clears throat> so they were the first ones that I made an, a, a, a big enclosure for, and that's probably going back now, maybe around that could be maybe around six years ago. Uh, <clears throat> and then shortly after that, I dabbled in with doing my first proper walk-in for a Burmese python that I had at the time, and I seen then that the Burmese used it well, and there was a pond. Uh, is able to swim, submerge, in and out, climb, stuff like that. And I seen at that point that 
yeah, for me going forward, you know, I will always try my best to provide the best amount of space and room possible, um, you know, for giant snakes. Um, and <clears throat> when I got my first retic, I've only been keeping retic little pythons um, for the last, probably the last four years. So I have, but in those four years, you know, I have amalgamated a fair amount of them that I still have. And, you know, they go from different sizes. So I've got to see a vast difference in the size range and their activity levels. And one thing I will say is, particularly the pythons compared to the likes of your Burmese and stuff, they're a lot more active. They will make the use. At times, yes, they will stay stagnant and they won't move. Um, but when they do start to move, especially when they're getting hungry and they're wanting a meal, they will at that point start to actively hunt around the enclosure. And you will see the difference. And this is something that I hope to bring you know, to the public to let them see and some of my videos that I want to do going forward where I'll show them walking in from the very outside of the enclosure and seeing the difference in the behavior and how they react from the minute the door opens and the way their body positioning and everything else that accompanies with it. And at that point, then, you know, they'll be able to see what I'm on about, you know, when they are in hunt mode and, you know, when they are in an active mode that they're a totally different animal to something that's lying quite lazily and quite dormant, effectively. So, yeah, I guess... Over between the last sort of six years, moving forward then down the last four years then is when I obviously started to go for, you know, walking enclosures. It obviously costs a great deal of money as well to get them set up, to get them heated and to maintain them. It's not something that you can just do and then that's it done. There's the constant maintaining and the constant heating of them going forward at that point. Yeah, because in, in some ways you almost seem young to be caring for animals this way because, you know, it... <clears throat> Because you, because you are so young, you said you're like you're, you're only 32, which means you've only had you know however much time of you know adult money we could say, and uh, you're already expanding in this way, and it's it's pretty amazing. We're we're I would see, imagine a keeper who's been keeping much longer and who's been in it for much longer start to you know add these large enclosures. So it's pretty incredible the setup that you're able to build in your back garden. That's, that's it must have been a a lot of money, but b just so much work. Yeah. Um. No. Thank you. Um. I have probably come under criticism at times, you know, for, you know, making it seem like um, people have probably said to me or where they've, you know, commented or come up against me online. It's not that I'm showing off or that I think I'm better than anybody else because I'm not. I'm not an expert. I'm not a professional. Um, I am a keeper. I'm a private keeper, just like everybody else in this hobby. Um, would I say that I'm competent with the species that I'm keeping? I would say I'm competent, yeah. Would I say I'm the best or the most knowledgeable person? Definitely not. Every day is a school day. Every day is learning. Uh, but there is obviously within this hobby at times there is you come up against, you know, brick walls or you come up against people who don't want to see change, don't like change, and especially if the change is further better. Uh, and, you know, you'll get, you'll get criticism and you'll get ridiculed a wee bit because they'll think you're being snooty or you're trying to, you know, not everybody can do this. And, you know, I would say at some point later on, we'll probably touch on, you know, are these animals for everybody? Should everybody have them? And, and that's a question I'm sure we'll get to probably later on and I'll hopefully have a better answer for it. But, you know, for me, it's, it's, for me, it's, it's purely, I'm keeping these animals. These animals are amazing. And, you know, for me, it's, I want to give them the best life possible. And for me, ever since, as I said, going back to that five and that 10 year old boy from wanting a reptile back then, it was still always the same motto, which was, how can I keep this animal to the best of my ability? And how can I make that animal's enclosure look like it's, you know, in the wild, you know, and that's always been right from I was 10, from my first corn snake, it had to have bark and soil substrate um, with a little bit of sphagnum moss, uh, you know, uh, cork bark hides, some natural branches, uh, a couple of leaves, 
It had, you know, even the water bowl, your normal plastic water bowl back then for me as a 10 year old wouldn't do. It had to be a certain type of water uh, feature that I could put in that looked like it was part of the landscape, you know, that sort of way. So it's, it's the little things, but when they all come together, you know, it achieves something that's really good and that betters obviously the welfare, you know, physically and mentally for the animal itself. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we lay out for people, let's take Daisy's enclosure, for example. She's obviously in probably one of the larger walk-ins. I think you said she was 21 feet long. So why don't we lay her enclosure or her walk-in shed out for people just to sort of verbally explain what it looks like and the features it has? Yeah, so hopefully then um, whenever you're doing this, uh, you'll maybe be able to put a picture of Daisy's enclosure up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then they can see. <laughs> um, I'll hopefully get you a couple of pictures that you can put up showing the enclosure and then showing her in it. So Daisy's enclosure is uh, 14, 14 feet long, uh, 12 foot wide, and eight and a half foot tall uh, at the front of it. And I think it's just over eight feet tall at the back. Um, would I like that enclosure bigger? Yeah, you know, I would. Um, is that enclosure a lot bigger than what the standard person keeping reticulated pythons in? Without a doubt, you know, it is. I could have took that enclosure and I could have racked and stacked that to the wall and fitted quite a lot of reticulated pythons in there. Um, but, you know, at some point, yes, I would love for that enclosure to be bigger. I've always said this in AHS groups, you could have the biggest amount of space possible for an animal and it could be wonderful looking and it's big, but it all comes down to how you design that enclosure and the functionality of it and the three-dimensional floor space that you create. So it does. And, you know, that there basically is what makes an enclosure. So as I said, you have the biggest enclosure possible. Um, but basically, it comes down to how you furnish it and how you lay it out. You know, I could have an enclosure that's 21 feet long. And effectively, I could have maybe one branch in that. One branch in a 21 foot long enclosure isn't really going to do much for that animal mm-hmm. or two branches even or three branches. Um, you know, yes, there's the space for her to stretch out fully. And that's amazing. But again, it's how you design it. When you look at Daisy's enclosure, or for the people that are maybe going to watch this, that are maybe seeing it put up in a picture, you'll see that that enclosure has branches going in all different directions, crisscrossing, overlapping, running at different angles. That means that that enclosure then has created a lot of three-dimensional space that that animal can move and obviously negotiate its way through. Some of those branches aren't uh, secured totally tight, so they have a slight wobble. They won't break and they won't fall over. But there's a slight wobble, and the reason behind that is not every branch in the wild that a snake's going to climb is going to be perfectly horizontal. <clears throat> it's not going to be perfectly steady. Some of the branches will move. Some of them will sort of sway. You'll get lots of variation. And the reason behind some of the branches that slightly move is when that animal, all 11 plus stonover, is going across of it, that means that that animal has to use a lot more than just you know going straight across. It has to use stabilizer muscles. It has to obviously hold itself in a certain way to stop itself falling off. Uh, so all the while that animal is getting a workout, mentally it's getting, I think anyway, some sort of a workout as well because it's having to use its brain to sure. obviously fire down through the nervous system to get different muscles to work in continuation to stop it from falling off and to stabilize when the branch moves. Um, likewise, Daisy has a pond in there. She's quite a big pond. Um, her pond probably is... I would need to measure it again, but her pond stretches probably over two-thirds of the width of the enclosure. Um, so I could get down on it and lie in it and put my arms out straight behind me. And I have more than enough room and right down to this, I could do effectively a water angel in it. So she has a pond in there that she can go in. She can fully submerge. She can go right under. 
the pond has a waterfall system where there is a pipe with a pump, a very, very powerful pump in the pond, because obviously we all know that uh, particularly the pythons love to defecate in the water. They love to poo and pee in it. So it's a very powerful pump with biomedia that basically filters the water. Uh, that water goes up through a pipe. It goes in behind the pond where you can't see it. Everything's hidden. And then it comes out into the waterfall area and comes trickling back down when it's been obviously cleaned and back into the pond again. The trickling water as well, for me, it gives it some sort of Gives us some sort of a, a different aspect, you know, for her, for the snake in there. It's got the water dripping down on top of the other water and making movement. She can bring her head up out and put her head under the water and let the water bounce off her and that sort of thing. Uh, I've also built the pond in a certain way, like I did with my caiman, um, where I cantilevered the land over the pond, which means just like out in Asia and places in the wild, you know, the way nature is, nature is amazing. Nature will have banks, um, you know, culverts and stuff like that coming over the top and kind of leaving over and air pockets where animals can go up in, especially with anacondas, um, where they can go up in and they can hide in an area and be totally hidden out of the way, mm -hmm. but still be in the water and still have a bit that they can breathe. So I've done that with her pond as well. So she has an area that she can go underneath. I can look into the pond and not see her unless I bring my head right down and look underneath the cantilevered area. It can make it somewhat difficult as such when you're trying to get her out. Um, but it's what's better for the animal and, and that is what matters to me. It's not about how much it makes it easier for me or how much safer it is for me. It's what makes it better for the animal in my aspect. You know, her substrate there is a mixture of soil, a mixture of garden bark, leaves. And then we obviously have live plants in her enclosure. So we have various types of bamboo, um, and a couple of big leafy indoor plants and ferns. And those plants are growing really, really well. They're watered every second day. So they are, they're capping their pots, obviously, so the roots don't go through the floor, but they are watered every second day. They're spray misted with water then every second day as well. Keeps the humidity up in the enclosure. You will see the snakes at times drinking the water droplets off the leaves, as opposed to going down to the water bowl, because there's a water bowl in there as well. As opposed to going near the water bowl or drinking from the pond, you'll see them drinking off the leaves. Again, naturally things that they would do in the wild um you know bamboo i find is quite a hardy plant for that type of you know climate that i've created in there with temperatures ranging from 25 26 degrees celsius on the floor <clears throat> right up to the highest points where the temperatures are maybe 34 degrees and then lower down points where you'll have temperatures in around 30 31 i actually don't use a basking spotlight whatsoever in that enclosure they have no basking spotlights if they want to bask what they have to do is they have to climb and get the higher points in the enclosure and then they can bask like they would in the wild. Mm. That's gotcha. my motto. Again, it's getting the animal to exercise. Uh, I'll get one of the photos sent through that you can pop up as well that will show uh, there's this whole debate about snakes stretching out in a very much a straight line across the enclosure. Is it something that's seen very often? I couldn't honestly say. In my experience of keeping, I never see them totally straight. But what I will show you, and you'll see it in the photos, is Daisy meandering her way through the enclosure diagonally. And, you know, she has more than enough room. People have obviously commented on the group saying that for a 21-foot animal, she looks small in the enclosure, which I take as a good compliment. But again, for me, space is great, but it's how you design it and how you lay it out and how you make all that functional three-dimensional aspect to it, you know, to get the animal moving and exercising and working in the right way. If you don't, it's just a waste of space, unfortunately, for my for my thinking.
Yeah, definitely. And, and especially with the live plants, for example, that is something almost no retech keeper uses just because of how, A, if, if the enclosure is not big enough, it's really tough to do plants, especially if you're doing pod at large plants. But also, typically snakes are pretty hard on plants. So I guess be, be, because you have so much wood structure, she's not actually putting her body weight onto the plants and crushing them. Yeah, that's that's actually, you've just hit it spot on there, Dylan. That's that's perfect, what, you, what you've just said. Yep, you've picked up on that, obviously, yourself. We're looking at the photos. So exactly, um, if you design a complicated enough beam or branch structure through the enclosure and you carefully lay the plants out around that, um, even though the plants are maybe eight, foot, eight and a half foot tall, you will find that the snakes will actually, some of my branches, I have them actually going through the bamboo canes. So you'll find that the snakes will actually go between the bamboo canes along the branch or you'll find them rearing up into the air. They'll touch part of the leaves with their nose or their head, and the leaves will start to depress down, and then they'll raise back up, knowing that they can't actually put their weight on that, and they'll choose a different angle. Occasionally, when they're slithering along the floor, especially when they're shedding and they're rubbing themselves as hard as they can to get the skin off, sometimes you will get where they've hit one of the smaller potted plants, and they will knock it over slightly. It's not a big deal. You just pick it up, the plant's fine. The main thing is just keeping them watered, keeping them spread. And, you know, I have lost plants in the past because I've maybe had to go on holiday and maybe for a number of days, maybe say four or five days, they haven't got the strain that they needed and they'll have started the weather. Or likewise, in the winter, when, because as you said, it's very cold outside, the heaters are going even more to keep the temperature inside. And sometimes with that, you know, and if you haven't chose the right type of plant, sometimes I chose like various palms in there, like entire palms. Not a great plant for that high heat and humidity. They will eventually wither, no matter how much you do. Certain types of bamboo will work extremely well. And I have lots of new shoots coming out at the minute. Makes it quite difficult, actually, for a, a keeper because when you go to walk into that enclosure, you have several giant snakes in there that, without saying, you know, could take a person down, could cause obviously a lot of injury, could even potentially prove fatal if it's not done right. So we have big viewing windows around the enclosure that we can see in before we open the door. And, and you know, at that point then we can try and spot where the head is amongst the undergrowth because it's effectively like either obviously in the Asiatic reinforced on the uh, undergrowth areas where you're trying to find a snake that's hidden. And even at big sizes, it can hide quite well. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's uh, obviously is one of the concerns with keeping giant snakes and giant reptiles in general is there is a safety concern. So you do have to be careful with that. Um, with the... With the misting, was the misting automatic or is that something that you're doing by hand? I So I have like a big pressurized pump sucker. Okay, yeah, it's yeah. It's about eight or nine liters of water. So I just mist with that. I go in and just mist the plants down with that. I actually find I don't even need to mist the walls. I don't need to mist the floor. Used to be when I started out before I put live plants in, I was having to spray them. If you notice in my enclosure, I have what's called live boards. So they're basically the likes of the offcut of a tree. And one side of the board is flat like your fence board and the other side looks like a living tree. So I have them all screwed to the walls around every most of my enclosures. It makes it look quite natural. So before the live plants, I would have had to spray the walls, spray the bark, spray, spray the branches, spray everything to get the humidity level up. And basically now um, with the plants in there, all I need to do is spray the plants. I spray the snakes. If the snakes are out in the open, I'll spray the snakes just on top of their bodies. But all I need to do is spread the plants. Uh, the floor and stuff, I don't need to spray. I don't need to spray the walls. And 
I am getting probably the best sheds off my reticulated pythons that I've ever had. I mean, my big normal that's up in there, Pandora, who came from the middle of Jan Snake Rescue, when she first came to me, she uh, went into a viv that was 12 feet long, and I promised Jez and Joe, the owners of that rescue, that when I took her on, that I would give her a walk-in, and I did. Um, but for the period of time that she was in a 12-foot viv, you know, even though she was spread and the enclosure was spread, her sheds were okay. But I must say, the difference in having a walk-in, a proper pond, and good humidity and good airflow, the sheds are brilliant. They're absolutely fantastic. You know, you get really good sheds. You also get colors in the skin, like really, really popping a lot better, where they look a lot more vibrant, a lot more healthier. Um, and again, I put that down to, you know, humidity and heat and airflow within a good open space. What does a good shed look like for a retic? Because when I, you know, with the snakes that I have, everything comes in one piece. Although when you look at, you know, YouTube um, influencer type people, you see a, a retic shed and it just, boom, like there's thousands of pieces of skin all over the enclosure. So will a retic shed in basically one piece or, or what do you consider a great, a great shed? Uh, when they're small, um, when they're hatchlings, juveniles, when they're an animal that's maybe eight, nine feet. Yeah, you know, you could be lucky where you'll get a nice, long, full-length shed intact. From my own perspective, as you start to get into like 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 feet, you will get the shed coming off in pieces. Now, you might get big sections that are like that, that are completely intact with the underbelly scales and the pattern. Um, But likewise, you know, you will find that it is just, you know, when the skin comes off, it's just, especially when they're big, big, there's just skin everywhere. Now, the skin at times, what I'll say, will be in big sections and it looks great, but there's lots of it in different areas, you know, because they'll just take it off all around. Um, so you know, d- defining bed, but... a good shed for you is just like it's coming off completely. You're not looking at an animal with stuck shed and whatnot. <laughs> a good shed for me is the animal shed, as in when you, you know, you see it maybe shed in the night before, in the middle of the night when you're going to check. You come out in the morning, that animal's got all the skin off it, even right down to the tail tip. There's no retained eye caps. Um, and around the nostrils are nice and dampened looking. They're not dry. And, you know, some of the retics that I've taken on from people, um, you know, I have a good friend who gives me retics. His retics, whenever he has passed on to me, are in brilliant condition. He's kept them really, really well. Likewise, I've had, you know, a couple of retics that have come from other people uh, where they haven't had the humidity right. And when that's the case, you'll find the nostrils are sort of bunched up and closed over a bit more. Uh, and that can take a wee bit to obviously, you know, get loosened up. Uh, likewise, you'll get someone that have, you know, nose rub where they've been rubbing against the viv. Mm. Um, one of my animals is in a walk-in, had to go into a viv temporarily, didn't do it all. Used to put its head up into the corner and push down into the viv. Didn't want to be in a viv. Uh, thrived a lot better in a walk-in where it had more space to move around. But as I say, yeah, you know, in the viv, your shed's obviously a lot easier because you've only got a small area where that snake can get it off. But in walk-ins, you know, you're climbing around through the branches, up over the sides of the pond, the bark, you know, the skin's everywhere. <laughs> do, do you, you even, see... have stuck, even have it stuck to the leaves of the plants. So do you have to go in and pick it all up, or does yeah. a lot of this get broken down on its own, or you go clean it up? No, I have to go in. I'll go in, and I'll maybe be on my hands and knees, and I'll have to crawl along the floor, um, up in through the branches and stuff. Um, the big reticulated python house with the big ones in it obviously they're a pond a lot of the time some of the biggest girls like daisy and summer summer's 20 foot two inches and she's 13 stone she's heavier than daisy even though she's smaller and um, when they shed they tend to shed a lot of their skin into the pond which is great for them 
But for me as a keeper, it's an absolute nightmare because you've got huge big lumps of underbelly scales in there that go over the top of the filter housing, absolutely jam the filter. And then you get a trickle of water. Instead of a nice jet of water coming down the waterfall, you get a little trickle. So then that what happens at that point is those animals need to be caught up. They need to be removed from the enclosure. You need to drain the pond. While the pond's draining, I have a net that I am put in and I net the skin and any, because obviously when they shed, they tend to go to the loo. So when that happens, I have to net the skin out and I have to net the poo out. And then when it gets right down to the bottom, I can drain the rest of the dregs out, give it a quick wash round, and then obviously refill. Now, refill on a water bowl is out of the water bowl, water tipped, wash back in. Cleaning and refilling a big pond like that, you're looking at somewhere probably in the region of four hours. (laughs) (laughs) The joys of keeping a large of giant snakes. Yeah, and then the other aspect is Daisy is an amazing animal once she's out, but she will always try and get into the water if she thinks you're going to get her out. And when she gets into there, she's not afraid to hold her own. She will strike at you. She will open mouth. She will do her best not to get her out. And obviously at that point, you're dealing with an animal that's very, very powerful, very large, very heavy. But when she's soaking wet, it's literally like trying to hold on to an electric eel at that point. It's very difficult to try and get enough of her out because you have to get at least half of her out of the pond to get the rest of her out. If you get only a top third out, there's been a couple of instances where she has pulled back in quite hard and hooked me, and she's almost pulled me in then, you know, to part of the pond with her. Uh, You know, so retrieval from her from a pond isn't the easiest. You know, it it can be, it could take maybe 25 minutes to get her out of a pond to do it safely without getting anybody, you know, without getting me injured. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that sounds that sounds terrible uh, to, to do. Even with my small boas, sometimes I'm frustrated with them. So I can't imagine dealing with a 21 foot snake. And you know, you'd brought up the nose rubbing, which is something that we see a lot in the retic world. You know, it's it's pretty common to see snakes pacing back and forth and getting their, their nose rubbed out. Does that behavior, in your experience, basically stop in in the walking enclosures? Do you see them pacing and and rubbing their noses on the walls? I never. Uh, this isn't a lie. I never get any nose rubbing in the walking enclosure. The only time I might get nose rubbing is when they're scratching and they'll rub their head along the bark or along a branch. Um, but I don't get, like, I mean, I have windows in there, obviously, big window panes um, that would replicate the glass in a viv. But the only thing you'll ever see with them is when they fancy to have a mooch about, you know, sometimes Daisy, where you'll maybe see her for a week, every night for a week, during the middle of the hours of the morning or during late at night, she might decide she's going to go on a little rampage and she'll basically tour the enclosure. She'll not rub her face, but she will climb and meander and go through the branches, sit up high, move down. You will see her periscoping right up into the air vertical, maybe five or six feet into the air, um, or climbing up the walls vertically. And then when you come out in the morning, she'll have rested herself either up on a branch or she'll have taken herself into the pond. I just want to jump back to the plants for one second. For for lighting, what do you what did you rig up there to make sure the plants are getting light? Very simple, actually. Um, so I thought I was going to have to get all these fancy, uh, you know, propagation lights and stuff to get the plants to grow well. Um, but when I got in touch with a, a company who sell like the propagation lights and the high quality lights for plants, they actually said to me, they said, "What are you growing in there?" And I said, "I'm growing bamboo and stuff like that." And their advice was that. You don't need any special lighting. They were like, just go to your local, uh, you maybe call it in Canada, a Home Depot store, or over here we call it a hardware store. And um, just go to your local hardware store, Home Depot store, and get your big long uh, tubes, your LED tube lighting, 
that you would see maybe in schools and stuff like that, where they have them along the ceiling to light up the classroom. Yeah. He says, just get those. They're cheap, but they do the job. And they do. They light up the enclosure. They're only maybe five watts for maybe something that's maybe, you know, six foot in length. Um, they light it up. I have two of them, just only two. I have two six foot ones in Daisy's enclosure and they grow the plants really well. And I have two five watt ones or five foot ones in my biggest water monitor enclosure. And, you know, the plants in there are growing well too. Okay, yeah, so that's, that's simple. Now, nothing, nothing special. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. And as far as keeping retics or keeping large species, you know, b- b- besides the, you know, offering large space and setting up the enclosure properly, like you'd already mentioned, is, are there any other tips or, or things that you see people making mistakes online? I mean, we see a lot of overfeeding. Uh, is there anything else that jumps out to you that, that you, as, that's giving you success with them that you see people not quite falling through with? Um. You mentioned there about overfeeding. So there's people people would look maybe at what I feed mine and go, you know, and I have had people say whenever I've put up pictures of them with, you know, swells, and people are saying, What does that animal eat? And I've told them, and then they're like, Oh, you're power feeding that animal, you're overfeeding it. But you know, I would say I probably have some of the healthiest, leanest looking retics, you know, especially at you know, good sizes. Uh, you know, they've been shared around with people like Tom Crutchfield and other places for you know promoting obviously how healthy they look at those sizes. When you compare them to other keepers that are high profile, like you know Jay Brewer, um, you know Bram Barchak, uh, and other keepers, obviously, and, and some of the keepers obviously over here as well, you see a lot obviously of snakes that are quite obese. Mm-hmm. Um, for for me myself, my method is I don't have a regime, I don't have a routine, I don't say that animal's been fed today. I'm going to feed that animal in exactly six weeks' time. I don't do that. Um, I let the animal's behavior dictate when it wants food. Uh, sometimes you have to rein it in a little bit because some of mine, because they are moving around, you know, you could feed them a super huge meal. Like uh, my wild type, Pandora, who's just a little over 17 feet, she swallowed, in one of her sittings, she took two lambs followed by two extra large chickens. In um, one sitting? In one sitting, yeah. Wow, that's so amazing. She took, she took two lambs, which are two big prey items, and then two big extra large chickens which are probably, what, three kilos each of chicken. And so that was a four prey out of meal. And, you know, it took her to eat the whole lot. It took her probably the guts of maybe five hours, um, you know, to get everything down. Um, now that, I fed that meal to that animal uh, just after Christmas, two days after Christmas Day. And that animal set with an absolute massive swell. Like I'm talking probably a swell of probably, I would say somewhere in the region of maybe a foot and a half, and you know, in width, you know, just looking at it a foot and a half, not actually the circumference of it. Um, and it looked disgusting, but that animal wanted those prey items. It wasn't as if I, you know, trained them into her mouth. You know, she took the first one, you know, she wanted the second one, she wanted the third, and she wanted the fourth. And after the fourth, she was given the option if she wanted a fifth, and she refused. So that's when I knew that animal had had enough in the sitting. And that animal stayed two days after Christmas. I didn't feed that animal again until I think it was the middle of March, you know, yeah. so it was, and when she ate in the middle of March, she had, her meal then wasn't just as big, so she had uh, one lamb and two chickens, I think it was, so still a big meal, but slightly smaller than that meal, and uh, after that, she didn't get fed there until I think it was towards the end of May, you know, so my motto is that I will feed big, big meals, and I will then you know, stretch out, you know, what the, the space between, the frequency between, 
you know. So people will say, oh, you shouldn't feed them so many predators at once. You know, it accounts to one big meal as one. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter in my eyes if they're different prey and if they're getting put in at the same time. It all amalgamates to one big meal. And some of these animals, when they're found in the wild and they've been had an autopsy done, they will have, you know, they find multiple different species of food in them at the one time. Particularly the pythons, they're hunters in the wild, but they're also opportunists as well. So for me, it's about giving them large meals, but varying the size of the large meals. You know, so one might be a really large meal, then the next feed might be slightly lower, uh, and mixing it up, and then increasing the frequency and stuff between. And th- and that's the way I feed all of mine. I mean, I have a young bally yellowhead, particularly the python, and I got off a good friend uh, last August. When I got that animal, it was four feet, because it's only coming up on a year and a half old. That animal was four feet when I got it. Um, now we're sitting, what, at June, and that animal is about eight and a half feet long. So it's grew about four and a half feet in that space of time. By the time the end of August comes this year, it'll be here a year, I would say that animal will probably be nine feet or slightly over it. Now that animal in a feed, even at only eight and a half feet at the minute, is taking three chickens that are probably in around the 800 grams, 850 grams mark. So she's taking three of those in one feed, but she's maybe not eating them for four or five weeks. But every time she sheds, she's growing about four inches, four or five inches per shed. So, so you're feeding, is. you know, those big, the big animals, you know, maybe four to six times a year type thing, but doing yeah. large, large yeah. meals. So yeah. When they're young and grown, you know, they get fed big meals. There's still a stretch between their feed patterns, but they get fed more frequently effectively because they're younger and they're growing and they want the food, you know, effectively. Um, and I mean, <clears throat> you'll hear people online and stuff. You'll hear people saying, can I keep my reticulated python at this size? Again, that's down to people maintenance feeding. You know, they're limiting the intake of food to these animals to keep them at, you know, a certain size. It's more manageable. You know, when reticulated pythons are fed properly, they will grow. Will all of them, you know, in my experience, and from talking to people who have much more experience and been doing this for a lot longer than I have with the species, you know, you will hear them say that the size of these animals depends on genetics and food intake. You know, the two things have to work together. You know, not every reticulated python will grow to be 18, 19, 20 plus foot. Um, but every reticulated python, even some of the more dwarf species that you'll hear people talk about, the dwarf locales, you know, will still exceed 10 feet easily, you know, if fed appropriately. Well, and I think the other important thing too, well, well, two things with that. One, digesting massively large meals takes a lot of calories as well. So that's that's something they actually burn calories trying to digest such a huge meal. So that, that is one thing for people to consider. But also the amount of exercise your animals are getting just by virtue of the way you keep them. It's not like you're feeding them these huge meals and then they sit for two weeks digesting and then they continue to sit for another two two or three months yeah. without moving because there's nowhere to go. They, they can't yeah. burn off the energy. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you actually brought that up. I forgot to mention that. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's another reason that I personally think, again, I could be wrong, but I personally think because they're getting huge meals, so they're getting a huge calorie intake, when my animals feed, I encourage all of them to strike feed. Um, you know, people will say, about, oh, it means the animal can be more reactive or can be more aggressive and going into the enclosure. It is what it is. For me, you know, snakes are constrict. The snakes that I keep are constrictors. In the wild, they grab their food, they wrap their food. Unless they're eating roadkill, or deceased animals, you know, they're wrapping it. If I can get each of my animals to strike feed and I'll play with the animal, I'll wiggle it, I'll shake it, I'll try and forcefully, you know, remove it. Not really hard, but I'll shake it enough that it encourages to keep the pressure on. Some of my pythons there will, 
put a constriction squeeze on for maybe 15 minutes straight before they let up. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's good because there's a lot of energy, in my opinion, that pumps through that animal, through all those muscles, to keep that power going at that point. Again, that's a workout. As you were saying, you know, there's calories taken there to obviously to try and burn that meal off. <clears throat> and then again, for me, my animals aren't sitting in a small biv. They're getting that chance once they've digested. They can go into the water. They can have a swim. They can climb. They can move themselves around. And, you know, if that animal's moving itself a couple of times a week, you know, if biggest animal there, biggest animals are just over 11 and 13 stone. I mean, the energy that it must take to move that animal up vertically into the branches and across the branches, you know, I, I can't imagine the mental energy, but, you know, they will do it. And likewise, Daisy, you know, who's just over 11 stone, um, I have seen her in the enclosure where you maybe startle her when you walk in. She's a bit nervous in the enclosure. Um, and when I've seen her in the enclosure, she's been startled. It's surprising how quick an animal of that size can actually move from one end of the enclosure to the other. It's actually, it's actually pretty frightening. You don't really get to see them much moving quite fast, but when they want to move, they can actually shift pretty quickly. You know, so again, all of those different things in my eyes help the calorie intake, you know, keep going down because they're burning energy all the time, in my opinion, for them when they're moving around. And then plus, obviously, as you see, I bring my animals out quite a bit. They're part of our family. We bring them out to use as educational uh, ambassadors, obviously, in the work that we do with kids. So they're constantly getting to move, use muscles, use energy. And again, that's how I think that, you know, in my eyes, they stay sort of relatively lean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Why don't we quickly discuss where these animals fit in herpetoculture just in general? Because they are maybe more popular than they should. Or Where do you, where do you think they, their their role is in our hobby? So, I mean, give me one second. So here is a baby pied, obviously. Um, this is one that came by my friend. Obviously, as you can see, they're a little bit bitey still at this size. Um, this one here is born uh, about out of the egg about three weeks ago. At uh, this size here, obviously, very manageable, you know, but even still, as a fresh newborn, you're looking at maybe, you know, 18 inches, 19 inches long. Um, this size here, very manageable, very easy. Doesn't take a great deal to obviously keep them at this size. Uh, this animal here quite easily, and I'll probably document this one as I'm going along. Um, this animal here will obviously uh, continue to grow, and they can grow obviously quite quickly. This is, this is obviously a male. Another misconception is that males don't get big. Um, I have a male there that is 17 and a half feet long, mm. so they can get big. I obviously have several males. I have another male pied um, that I keep, and he has grown in a year and a half, he has probably grown nearly six foot. He's now 11 foot pretty much. And the males, what I think are quite strong, they're quite athletic, they're quite powerful. Um, I think people keep them smaller because it's the misconception that males don't grow that big. Um, but I mean, back to your point, obviously, is you know, you can get an animal like this size, particularly the pythons, obviously, are very, very, very commonly kept now. There is a lot of them. This obviously one here is a little tiger pied. Um, that's had albino um, you know looks really pretty it's hard to see in this light but when you look at it in natural light it's absolutely stunning looking um, at this size here you know anybody can pick this up you can walk into a pet shop get something like this you can buy it at a breeder's market very easily it's the commitment after that is where people then struggle 
you know, everybody wants a reticulated python until they don't. Uh, and that comes when this animal is getting bigger. They have a high, high, high reactive food response, the majority of them. Um, you know, the hook becomes your best friend to get the feeding response normally broke. We've all seen the videos online um, where, you know, there was one going around, I think, last year or towards the year before where uh, a female was taking one out of an open top uh, mm -hmm. glass tank. Uh, and, you know, the good thing was everybody, reptile keeper or not, could see what was going to happen in that instance. And that lady got grabbed and got wrapped. You know, an animal that size, 10 or 11 feet, yeah, still going to deliver, you know, a nasty-ish bite. You know, are you going to die from it? No. It wrapped around her, around her arm. Is she going to die from that? No. Likewise, though, if that animal wraps around your neck, you know, it could be a bit of a different story. But, you know, the problem comes with these animals when they start to get big. You know, people are going to say they want to keep them their entire lives. When they get big, it can be a different story. Feeding that animal, it can be costly for people. We're quite lucky as in our food mostly comes for free because we get farmers and gamekeepers and we get large food items like that. So it doesn't really cost us that way. Again, you're looking at the animal starts to get bigger. You're going to have to jump up and closure and closure and closure. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you know, people then, as you can see, obviously within the hobby, some people don't want to go beyond eight or 10 foot long bibs. Um, some people have reticulated pythons where they want to get them as big as they can and as quick as they can. And again, those animals, as you've already mentioned, they can spend their lives in small divs where they can't really turn around, they can't climb, they become obese. And they either, you know, you don't see many people that are keeping reticulated pythons that are, you know, quite an old animal. Steve Dawson there, he obviously is a very big person in the reticulated python keeping world. He has been doing it a long time. He's very knowledgeable. He's always kept in walk-in closures himself. He has some amazing reticulated pythons there that he's had over the years that have lived to be, you know, quite an age. I think his oldest one maybe lived just over 30 years old. Mm. But, you know, you could ask yourself, how many reticulated pythons do you see online that are 15, you know, 20 years old? The two oldest snakes that I have would be Lord P, my biggest male. And he is now 12 here, so he is. And uh, the next one after that would be Summer. Uh, my lavender tiger that I acquired off a, a nice guy there in England and he's had her from she was young and she is coming 11 this year you know and they're my two oldest animals and my plan will be that hopefully that I'll be able to keep those animals going and I would like to see those animals hit 20 years plus all being well and I'm hoping they will there is obviously talk about sometimes the genetics in them to do with the morphs and stuff can lower their life expectancy as opposed to your your normal colors that aren't diluted. Mm. Um, but it's one of those things, I don't know if there's been enough research done on it. But again, they're, they can be a long-lived animal. They're an animal that gets big very quickly. Not everybody can care for them when they reach their adult size. You know, removing an animal like this here out, obviously, you know, I haven't begun tap training or anything with this. You know, that animal bit me there, so I put my hand in. You know, yeah. is it going to hurt me? You no, know, it's just a few pinpricks. You know, that's it. Quickly, that animal realized once it's out now, it's obviously quite chilled. I mean, we do a lot of work with our animals where we put our hands over their head. We try and desensitize them to touch certain parts of their bodies. So if you get an animal that's quite well balanced, would I ever say that they're tame? I would never say that any animal that's not domesticated is tame. I would just say that they're tolerant. If you work with them long enough and you do certain things with them, they can become quite well desensitized to obviously certain aspects of keeping. Um, but as I say... Do they belong for everybody? It wouldn't be for me to say that, that somebody should or shouldn't keep them. Personally speaking, do I think that every person should be able to walk in freely and get one? 
and end up with a snake that's going to be 12, 14, 15, 16 feet plus. I personally don't think so, but that's my opinion. And that's purely because it's not to stop people from keeping things. I think if people are going to keep animals of that sizes, that they should be able at that point then to look after that animal throughout its life expectancy. Not that, that animal should be passed on to people like Joe and Jez over in the UK here who run the Midland Giant Snake Rescue. And I mean, their rescue is testament itself. They might have, you know, giant species that they get in over the last number of years. They might have ones that have been surrendered because people's circumstances have changed or people have realized, you know what, particularly the pythons, certain sizes are for me, but as they get bigger, it's not. And again, you know, they are an animal that, as you will see mentioned a lot, as people will say, I would love this animal. I love the colors. I love the snake, but I don't have the space. And again, that's what it boils down to is space, time, money, effort, and commitment to the species and enjoyment to actually keep seeing that animal through each stage of its life. You know, all the reticulated pythons that I have, um, I haven't let anyone go. I don't plan to. We, we love ours, our family. You know, we are very much a family-oriented family when it comes to our animals. And, you know, it's one of those things. It's a way of life and it's a passion as such. And that's that, that for us is what we get out of the enjoyment. It's not as if we're trying to be, oh, look at us, how cool we are. We've got them kind of snakes. You know, if that was the case, that would only last for a certain amount of time. And then you'd get fed up. I mean, as you heard me saying, it takes four hours to empty and refill a pond on a good day, yeah. you know, and then not to mention lifting shed skin, poo, feeding, you know, when you're feeding some of the giants, feeding something like this here, you know, isn't going to take very long, done no matter of minutes, feeding some of the giants when they're taking big meals, you could be feeding some of the giants maybe for five hours, you know, back and forward, checking on them. Obviously they're separated from each other at feeding time, but you're back and forward checking on them. You are then offering them other food if they want it different things like that so it's a lot more time consuming but as i said you know should everybody in the hobby have them my opinion is if they can care for them if it's somebody that wants it for a quick fix or a quick new animal to have i think they should look at something else i don't think it's fair you know are we breeding them to the point now where they're becoming near enough like royals i think we're heading that way and i think we're sure they're going to have to at some point you know try and uh you know what would you say govern ourselves or you know regulate ourselves you know to try and look at the amount that we're producing and if the demand that's there can actually sustain you know keeping them long term yeah no i think that's really really well said i mean there of course there are people who are capable of doing it like yourself but that passion has to be there you have to have a passion to want to create a walk-in building or convert your spare bedroom to an entire enclosure and whatnot. And I'm probably going to be going to an expo, I think later this weekend. And I'm sure I'm going to see small retics in little deli cups. And I think nobody here should probably be buying those because most people aren't going to go into the effort that you've gone to make sure that these animals do have large homes and space. I mean, it's nice that there's like super dwarf bloodlines coming in with smaller animals, but for these yeah. huge animals, like you said, it is so much work. And, and I think you said it perfectly with people want to retake until they don't want one anymore, because as soon as you get to that point, that threshold where it is so much work just to maintain it, it, it can, <laughs> it's no longer feasible for most people. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, this little one here, this is a little baby normal. It's probably hard to see on the camera, but this one here, this little normal, has actually got um, dwarf percentage in it. And um, these obviously were born around the same time. Um, but, you know, still for me, the prettiest reticulated python is a normal. Mm -hmm. But when you look at these two, if they're stretched out, 
and even the thickness, there actually is, even at baby stage, there is a difference in the size of a mainland, like this pie. And obviously the likes of this little normal here that's got a certain percentage of dwarf in it. And um, there obviously is, is a bit of a difference still in the size. You maybe see it's maybe hard, but you can see probably the difference in the thickness and the pie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and if I was to stretch them out, you could see then at that point the uh, the difference obviously in the length then, maybe about a couple of inches. But the mainlands do, they always will generate the bigger sizes. Um, and, you know, unless you can see the parents from where you're buying them from, as such, and know the percentage, you're only basically going on the honest person's word that the animal actually is a dwarf and it's not a full-blown mainland at that point. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one I of the problems with them... I think that sometimes contributes towards why, um, you know, I think that contributes at times to why people end up then moving them on too. They maybe bought an animal that was supposed to be uh, a dwarf and it's ended up, it's mostly mainland and then the size of that animal, again, people feed them like mad when they're young to get them up to be like, oh, look at the retic now, it's got bigger. And then they get to that size and it's like, you know what, pulling an animal that's 13, 14 feet. You know, you see people online talking about how do I get my reticulated python that's 12 foot, 13 foot. It's been a bit defensive inside the viv. How do I get it out? It's, you know, becoming more difficult to work with. You know, relatively speaking, you know, for people that are keeping bigger specimens, that is a small animal. And, you know, for removing an animal that size from a viv, if that's you know proven problematic for you, you know a viv is quite an easy thing to remove or articulate a python from. It's a box effectively, and most vivs aren't decorated with loads of cage furniture, which means there's very little for that animal to grip onto. You know, removing or articulate a python from a walking enclosure or a bigger enclosure that you know is a bigger animal. That's obviously a lot more difficult. You know, so I'm sure you've seen yourself with the posts. There's always posts about how do I make my animal more friendly? How do I make it more this? They are what they are. You know, they're an intelligent snake. Sometimes when you're watching them, you might think so, but they are an intelligent species of snake. They're a wonderful species of snake, but, you know, are they for everyone? I don't think so. You know, should they be banned? You know, I would say no. It's the wrong thing to do, and I don't think it's the right thing to do either. I think it'll make it worse. Things will go underground. Um, should there be licensing permits for them? Again, it's a hard aspect to ask because who is going to, you know, police that? Who's going to check it? Who's going to introduce legislation for it? If you start, if you start asking for licensing and permits, you will find, obviously, like in the states, that that becomes too problematic. You know, the governing bodies decide, hmm, don't really like this. It's uh, there's too much time and effort, and on our part, you know what? We'll just ban them. It's a lot easier. Yeah, it's a quicker solution. And you know, that would be a shame to see you know a species like this that is remarkable. And it's not just because I keep them. You know, being banned and being removed from the hobby, I would say that about any animal that's kept privately. You know, if someone said to me, "Any animal, would you ban it from the hobby?" I would always say, "No, I would never ban it." But I would look at ways, especially within ourselves, to regulate it and try and do it better. You know, people if they actually work together. And you have people that are maybe looking to get into retics. I think it's always a great thing if you can find somebody that keeps them. And if that person is willing and uh, open and honest enough to let you come to their house or to meet up with them, where you can get a chance to handle things at this side and then handle things that are much bigger. Look at removing animals from enclosures, look at feeding animals, that sort of thing. And, you know, that'll give you more of an understanding from the very start. You know, is this animal for me? <laughs> Yeah. Effectively. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think that's exactly what needs to happen. And I think another thing too, that would help is people like yourself producing content. Like you post lots of pictures on Facebook and, and you know, hopefully one day you get into doing YouTube and, and that would allow people to see, okay, this is what it takes to actually 
keep an animal like this. For example, I, I love sulcata tortoises. I think they're incredible. But when I see them being kept properly, yeah. I, I, I don't want one because I know there'd be just absolutely no way for me to be able to do that ethically. I just know I could never have that <laughs> large of a tortoise, especially being in Canada. You know, we only have summer for two months. So it's just not possible. So, you know, when you see people doing it properly, it sort of tempers that want to have that animal because you you see how much work goes into it and you go okay I don't I'm not actually interested in doing you know building a shed in my backyard and having a thousand dollar electrical yeah. bill I can look at pictures and maybe go visit them at these places but I certainly don't want to care for them and I, I think that will help hopefully temper some of that people just going out and impulse buying them yeah no I agree yeah definitely definitely so let's talk a little bit about uh, your your business, the the Jurassic Ark Encounters. And we had mentioned it earlier. Is is that something like is your property open for people to walk through, or is that all private and you just do out out of uh, out of your home? Business? So the way the way the way the way ours works is so we hold. I'm not sure obviously over where, where you are yourself and stuff, but over here we hold what's called a, a zoological establishment license um, over here in Ireland which in the UK mainland over in England and stuff would be referred to as an AAL, an Animals Activities Licence. Um, zoological Establishment Licence then legally permits us to bring out um, animals and exhibit and display them to the public, you know, for educational purposes, such as your schools, your youth groups and stuff in the evenings, um, you know, care homes, birthday parties, you know, all that sort of array of public, you know, public exhibition. Um, the likes of your main zoo license would cover, obviously, if you had a main zoo license, that would be the aspect that you're on about where people actually come to you mm. um, to visit you, you know, at a permanent place. Um, so the, what we do basically is we use, obviously, reptiles and we don't mix mammals. We have a strict thing where we don't mix mammals at all in with our animal encounters because, for me, with the animals that we bring out, it's too much of a recipe for disaster to mix the scent of prey um, around, uh, especially young kids. And then have obviously animals coming out that are obviously predators then effectively it's not a fair scenario to put the animal in and it's not obviously a professional uh, aspect to obviously have kids in that in that scenario either so we just stick solely to reptiles and obviously some invertebrates that, that's what we bring out um we're the only people in the north of ireland here uh or northern ireland as you'll hear it referred to as because it's part of the uk and we're the only people over here that are permitted to bring out the giant species of reptiles so we're the only ones that are allowed to bring out particularly the pythons uh, giant sulcata tortoises, uh, giant monitor lizards. Um, and to do that, there obviously we are inspected every year by uh, a team. So we have several vets that come out to inspect us along with an inspecting officer. Um, we have a lot of paperwork that we have to conduct and carry throughout the whole year. So every time I feed an animal, I have to record that. Every time that animal defecates, it has to be recorded. Um, every feed that animal is given has to be put down what I've fed it. Um, I have to put down uh, on a weekly basis, temperatures, humidity, basking spots. Uh, I have to record each animal, the date and time that it goes out to an encounter, how long that animal's there for, what the temperature of that animal is whilst it's there, what the temperature of that animal is when it's traveling in the vehicle. We hold a transport license on our vehicle to transport the animals from A to B. Um, I have to record and document every time an enclosure spot cleaned or full cleaned. Mm. Uh, there is there is lots that you know. There's lots that people don't understand. And um, there's there's a lot of log keeping and record keeping and data keeping. You know, for for our species that we use. Um, there's obviously health records then for when the animal's been sick. If it's been sick, what did you do? What veterinarian treated it? 
um, what was prescribed, how long the illness went on for, did it get worse, did it get better. Um, any new animals that we bring in have to be listed and recorded and identified. It has to be specific care sheets drawn up for each individual species so that myself or my lovely wife took sick, um, that somebody then could come in, basically, who really doesn't have much of a clue, that could look at this and say, this animal needs to be these temperatures, needs to be fed this, and this needs to happen, so they could deal with that in the interim. And um, we also have then a number of risk assessments, especially because we're bringing out large animals. Um, so we have like risk assessments for they're taking the python, for the water monitor, the white throat monitor, uh, and then risk assessments for our smaller stuff as well. We bring out our alligator snapping turtle. It's again got a risk assessment. And I'll say all of these are inspected, looked at, and signed off on then by a team of vets and inspector. Wow. That is amazing. So all of that is to maintain that license so you can basically travel from one place to another with the animals. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, our whole ethos is it's not about going out and just here's the animals, have a pet, have a stroke, take the money, thank you. For us, you know, we have turned business away because we'll have people trying to book us for certain events where number one, they're outside. And our rule is that we don't do outside unless on the day it's so warm that we deem it appropriate to do outside. And even when we do, the animals have to be kept in an indoor heated area and they're only out for a certain amount of time. So the majority of our work is indoors. So we turn work away because people want us to do it outside and we won't do it. We won't jeopardize welfare above money. Um, and then we have people that, you know, we only limit a certain amount of people that can be there when we're doing it for health and safety. And if people don't like that, we refuse to come. Um, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, it's all about education. We have turned away a business where customers have came to us and asked us to bring out certain animals, but they don't want snakes. They don't want snakes there. They're frightened of snakes. So I'll be saying to them, well, this is an educational thing. It's about getting people past that fear and past that stereotypical response that, you know, snakes are evil, they're monsters, they're mean. You know, that thing that we're brought up with from where, you know, kids, you know, don't touch snakes, which is, you know, sensible, but within reason, you know, they're not the mean monsters that they're portrayed to be so often. You know, so for us, if people don't want us to bring snakes, then we don't come. You know, we want to get people past that point of view. We want them to see that they're actually a very amazing animal, that they're very much a part of the ecosystems today and the world, and that they are needed to keep the balance and keep it right. And that obviously even the likes of your venomous, that they are used, you know, for medical procedures and medical um, studies and to help further, you know, medicinal purposes, you know, as we keep going forward, you know, so snakes are very much, in my opinion, they're very much a vital point when it comes to reptiles for educating. And the best way is, to get into the minds of children when they're younger, mm -hmm. let them experience these animals, let them get up close and personal and safe, safe, safely, and let them be able to experience them, learn a little bit about them. As part of our shows, we bring out uh, like uh, deceased animals that are preserved or else that are in skeleton form, because we like to show people the anatomy that goes on underneath the scales and the skin, to show them how these animals function, you know, how a snake's jaws are designed, uh, you know, all bits and pieces like that. So it's, it's more for us. It's not about just touching animals. It's about the whole educational fact behind it, you know, to give people a really good, clear understanding of how, you know, the natural world of reptiles actually function and work uh, and what their importance in society is. And is this your full-time job? It, it must be, right? It is, yeah. I have okay. I have another job. I have another job that I, that I do as well. And I, I don't talk about effectively, but, you know, the Jurassic side of it is pretty much, you know, we're flat out with it all the time and we're busy. Um, you know, it's like summer's coming in now, schools are getting ready to close, but we have a lot of summer educational activities that we're doing. And then we tie in with various places, um, like various educational facilities that are maybe like, we have an educational facility that's booked us here in July 
that are doing a topic on dinosaurs, an educational topic on dinosaurs. So they have us booked um, to try and sort of bring that little bit of an aspect to obviously get kids closest to the likes of some of the reptiles, which look a little bit like some from the prehistoric era. Obviously, birds are the closest relatives of dinosaurs. Mistakenly, everybody thinks it's reptiles, but it's actually birds. But, you know, it's again, it's trying to get those minds absorbing from a young age and getting away from that fear factor and that vilifying factor and stereotypical behavior that's so often associated with this select group of animals. Yeah, absolutely. And and how do the how did the primates get folded into, because like you said, they're not part of the tours, you don't bring them along, but you have capuchin monkeys and you have ring-tailed lemurs. How does somebody even so, go about getting those? So those there, yeah, those animals, so they're not part of our business. Um, those animals don't come out at all. Um, those animals basically have, some of them have came from, uh, you know, maybe like home rescue scenarios where they've been kept as the, you know, stereotypical primate pet. Um, and then people obviously realize, you know, these animals aren't pets. They never will be pets. The cute, cuddly monk- monkey factor will only last so long. A bit like the, I want to retic until I don't want it. You know, it's the same sometimes with a primate, you know, and they get past pillar to post. So some of the animals that have come to live with us, you know, one of them lived in a birdcage, a house, a full-blown male capuchin monkey. Um, and, you know, that animal was just, you know, basically the person met well, thought she could have it as like a surrogate child, but that animal was obviously highly dangerous and didn't want to be petted, didn't want to be touched. Um, we ended up with him. He, he was here. He lived with us I think, for about seven years, and then he passed away. I think he was around 35 years old at that point. Wow. Um, had one of our capuchin monkeys had a baby. Um, called Marcel. We called him obviously after the Friends monkey, one of the most famous ones. But we had to hand rear him because his mother rejected him. And we obviously then at that point uh, wanted to document, which we did on our Facebook page, we documented taking that monkey from infancy right off because if mum wouldn't take it back at all, the animal was going to die. So we hand reared that animal right from infancy for just over eight months between my wife, myself, and her late mother who was very good at helping out, who would have took the monkey down to her house whenever we were working to bottle feed it, to socialize with it, stuff like that. And we took that animal through the first eight months of its life in a domestic setting without trying to, you know, make it humanized. And then what we did was we introduced that animal back into its troop. So we called it Marcel and we documented it as from, you know, take the troop to show that these animals, they don't need to be raised like people. They don't need to be kept for that purpose. And they always should belong with their family. And are, are both examples of the primates, both the, the capuchins and the ring-tailed lemurs, are those in, in walk-in sheds as well? Is that what you have them in? Yes. So they are in walk-in. They've got walk-in indoors, but then they have big walk-in outdoor areas. Um, you know, so the capuchin enclosure there is uh, around about the uh, 13 and a half foot tall mark. Again, if I had more space and if I had an area, I would have it bigger. My... My dream goal would be to have an area with trees that I could build a perimeter fence around that they have the full exploration of the trees. That would be my dream. Whether that ever happens or not, I you know, I, I couldn't honestly say. Um, my main point with the primates has always been to show that they're not pets, that they're highly intelligent, sophisticated animals with their own social hierarchies, that we as people will never be able to fill that void. You know, you might get one as a baby, which has been pulled off its parents' back really cruelly um, to be raised. And to be adopted like a surrogate child in that family, that animal when it hits maturity becomes so confused about what it is. They lash out, they bite, and capuchins can inflict a very, very serious bite. You know, their canines can punch you right through a hand. 
you know, they could hit an artery, they could hit a vein, you know, they could do a lot of damage, a lot of nerve damage in a, in a very short space of a couple of seconds. You know, so they're, that's why they are classed as a, a dangerous wild animal. They're on a category one list than a zoo. Um, but, you know, they are the most popular primate throughout the whole of the world that everybody would like to have as a pet monkey. Um, but again, you know, their best aspect is just to let them be what they are, be a monkey, and be with their family troop and just do what they were born to do, which is to have their own squabbles, explore and move around and socialize with their own family as opposed to us trying to forcefully do or make them do what we want them to do effectively. That's where it goes wrong. So the animals that I have have came from sort of circumstances. So a couple of my lemurs came from a six by six by six foot pen where they were kept for years. Ring tail lemurs, lovely big long black and white tails. You see them in the wild, you see them in zoos, famous for jumping right up into the air, big leaps, walking along with the tail held high, and um, like they would in Madagascar, where they can identify each other through the tops of the grass. Um, kept in a very small pen. When they came to me, they, they actually were afraid to jump. They actually climbed everything to move. They couldn't jump. Took probably nearly a year before they realized they could be back to being what they were, a lemur. Um, and they're still living happily here with me uh, seven years later. The mom actually amazing. had a baby. The mother actually had a baby there uh, a couple of months back, we Annie, and baby with the parents doing what it should be, learning to be a lemur, learning to be a primate. And, and that's 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 the best advice that I could give anybody that wants primates is to think long and hard, not only what you're doing to yourself, more importantly, what you're actually doing to the animal. You know, your actions and what you want to perceive and what you want to force onto that animal will greatly affect that animal's mental and physical welfare as it goes along in life and quite badly. And they're one of those animals that because of their capacity to understand and learn, when their mental when their mental state is affected, it affects them for quite a long time. And sometimes they will never, you know, they will never get rid of, you know, the mental scars effectively. You will see certain monkeys that walk and they'll walk so far and they'll do like a head bob. And that's basically because that has become imprinted onto them in a small enclosure where they walk to one end and they go like that to turn. So you'll see them in big enclosures walking around and they'll do this random head bob and that's because of a small confinement in an enclosure. And that's still, it's very hard to get that out of them. I have two there because of their small enclosure that still do it a wee bit um, because, even before they came to me effectively. So how much work is it for you to, to care for them? Uh, it's it's a fair, I mean, you're trying to keep them mentally and physically stimulated so you're trying to change their enclosure up all the time you're trying to you're trying to as well you're trying to obviously provide puzzle feeders different ways for them to feed and um, you're trying to do you know everybody thinks monkeys like fruit fruits actually in, in, in itself lots of fruit is bad for them you know natural fruits in the wild are actually more starchy like our mm-hmm. vegetables our fruit and captivity is pumped full of sugars to preserve it so it's, it can end up giving monkeys diabetes believe it or not so most of their diet is vegetables with a little bit of fruit and seed, like lots of seed mixtures so that they can go along and use the dexterity in the hands to get the seeds and um, for grazing and stuff like that. Because primates in the wild will predominantly spend their day, obviously, moving, looking for food. Capuchins are fantastic. I mean, their their brain, their brain, uh, their brain to body size ratio is the largest brain to body size ratio in any primate. It's actually bigger than that of a chimps when you compare it to the size of the ratio of the body. Um, you know, they can use tools. They are seen in the wild um, using uh, like bits of like stone and anvils to basically bang on top of the nuts to get the shells open. They know in the wild that they can go and get a nut, go and put it under a tree in light of the sun to let the sun 
sort of weaken that shell, and then they'll start to tap on it, and you know, looking back a week later for it, you know, so incredibly, incredibly smart, and you know, basically uh, very, very rewarding animals. Yeah, that is incredible. Yeah, definitely not an animal that everybody should keep, but it's amazing that you're able to work with them and give them proper homes and give them some more space. So it's it's incredible. And and, and same with the retics. Obviously, it's sort of the same sort of situation where you have animals that end up in homes of people that aren't really able to care for them. And this was yeah. a great conversation, Dougie. We really covered a, a ton here. Is there anything that we didn't say today that you wanted to, to add before we wrap up? Um. No, I know we focused a lot on the snakes. Obviously, the other giant stuff that I keep, obviously, is the lizards, mm. um, you know, monitors and iguanas. <clears throat> Again, you know, uh, there's plenty of photos of those up as well. I mean, realistically, keeping should always fall back and we should always try and look, you know, at the species that we're keeping in the wild, uh, that, that we're keeping that obviously live in the wild. We should look at how they live in the wild and we should always try and incorporate our keeping into, uh, you know, how we keep them captively. And we should always try and look at how we can, you know, increase their enclosure size or how we can make that enclosure, you know, as I said about the retex, more three-dimensional, give that animal more space. Um, we should also try and ethically look inside our own head and think, you know, if I get, you know, a small animal, what is that animal going to be like in six or seven years' time? You know, uh, before I go back, I'll pull out a, a water monitor here, obviously to show you nice and small. Um, perfectly able to house at this stage. You know, our biggest water monitor there, his enclosure is, uh, I think it is, remember, it's 13 foot long. <clears throat> 13, 14 foot long. It's nine foot wide and it's eight and a half feet tall. And that's got a huge pond inside it that I can lie down and submerge myself completely. Um, and I can't touch the sides of it with my feet or my hands. Even though that animal's six foot six, it's amazing to see that he can swim around inside that pond mm -hmm. and you know do things that he would naturally do in the wild he still has his land area where he can get out and go on the land but he's got a lovely big water area dave kaufman i think that's that his surname dave kaufman he does a lot of the youtube videos yeah. of how we should be keeping these in the wild yes he's yeah. done some great features he's, he's going to have a new one coming out on, on the you know ball or royal pythons whichever you want to call them that'll be an interesting one to watch and um, but he's done some great work there where and he showed videos obviously of uh, Asian water monitors in the wild and articulated pythons in the wild and you know one of the things that I took away from those when I was building my biggest walk-ins was particularly the pythons when he was looking for them in the wild they were generally always found close to the water area but yet in captivity so often we give them a water bowl right you know when, when I give mine walk-in enclosures they will spend 75-80% of their time in the water so they will um, they will choose to stay there more they will still come out on land and sit in the branches, but they like to stay. They like to spend a lot of time in the water, more than what you would actually see if you give them a small bit with a water bowl. Asian water monitors, obviously water monitors in the name, but again, so often when people are keeping them, you know, they give them areas just to soak, you know, just that they can get their body into. I give mine ponds, you know, even the young ones that I'm going to get out here, you'll see, you know, they have an area in their enclosures at the minute. They obviously live in herbariums because they're small, but they have an area that they can go into the water and that they can swim. They can get their tail, the whole tail, everything in. And I think that's something that we should look at, you know, when we're going forward with keeping, you know, <clears throat> enclosures. We should look at things that, you know, might be a pain for us, but are very worthwhile for the animals. So for me, I'm keeping water monitors. I want to have those animals in a pond. I want those animals to be able to fully get themselves into the pond. Yes, they might not be able to swim, you know, a rim length, you know, 
maybe someday I'll be able to provide that and I would love that but the animal can still get into a pond it can still tuck all four limbs in and it can still use that tail like it was born to do and to actually propel itself through the water and even if it has to swim around in circles you know at six foot six it can swim to one end and swim in a circle back you know the animal's swimming effectively exactly. yeah. um, and you know that's for me it's always about looking the way the animals are in the wild how they're found one of the things that Dave Kaufman picked up in his video which was pretty cool was that I didn't know is that out in South and Southeast Asia, the humidity was really, really high in the, in the nighttime, really high in the evenings. He took humidity readings and temperature readings. Um, during the daytime, humidity was maybe 60, 65%. Yeah. But at nighttime, he was able to see that humidity out where you were finding your retics was maybe 85, 87% at nighttime. So he was basically saying, maybe we should look at nighttime to actually spray our retic enclosures and not spray them during the day. And that's something that I took away from that video and that I do. My articulated python enclosures get spread at night. And I'll normally spray them when it starts to get dark. And then by the morning time, there's still a little bit of moisture in the leaves. But the humidity is high at night, just like it was being shown in his video how it was in the wild. Um, and water monitors and stuff, uh, you know, when they're bigger, you know, they get fed, but they get fed less often. To obviously try and keep that nice little line going down the side. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's about, you know, keeping them happy, keeping them healthy, keeping them stimulated. You know, <clears throat> for me, I love being able to go into my enclosure. For me, I love with the big species being able to go into an enclosure, walk into it, sit down, and just sit down and watch the animal. The animal will come to me at times as well. I had a smaller water monitor the day that I keep on a smaller walk-in. I went into it, and while I was busy spraying and doing bits and pieces, came down off the top branch. You know, the top branch is maybe six and a half feet in the air for that enclosure. And down off the top branch, onto the floor, had a bit of a tongue flick, nosy around, and then decided to climb up me as a, as a, as a totem pole, you know. And again, that's the level of interaction I enjoy and I, and I like to get out of my animals. I mean, I'll hopefully if you have time. You yeah, know, yeah, let's see this this put baby. A, put a wee set of gloves on. This has come from, uh, this particular one came from a good friend of mine. He actually got it off, uh, got it off uh, Kevin McCurley, obviously, in America. Um, so I have it, but this little one here, obviously, as you can see, um, it's still a little juvenile, but when you work with them, you know, they can be incredibly tame. They can be, well, not tame, as I would say. They can be incredibly tolerant. At this size here, you know, great animal. You know, most people at that size, it's not really going to be much of an issue for them trying to, you know, house it. You know, but this animal already has grown in the space of a couple of months. It's grown, obviously, you know, quite well. Uh, you know, compare the size of an animal here, you know, to... The biggest one that I have outside there among my walk-ins, you know, six foot six, even lifting it, you know, it's a bit of an ordeal. You know, I'm wearing gloves now because the claws in this animal, even though it's young, the claws are still quite sharp. They're still quite hooky. You know, when they get to be big animals, the claws then at that point are obviously a lot more serious. But, you know, these animals, they are amazing. You know, they're absolutely fantastic. And as I say, you know, they can, when they're worked with, they can be very tolerant and they can obviously make a great animal to interact with. But again, it's down to whether the person wants to put in the time, if they have the patience to, to stay with the animal, even on their bad days. And if they have obviously the, you know, if they have obviously the time and the effort and the resources and commitment to obviously see the animal like this through, obviously till it's, you know, sort of full size. That's, 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 that's the thing that, you know, mm. people can give up on, unfortunately, at that sort of size. Yeah, no, that, I think that's some great, great advice. And, and, these animals are incredible animals. Like you said, they're very interactive, both the reticular pythons and monitors. And you can see the allure people want to keep them because they are so fascinating. But 
we do need to make sure that the people who are keeping them are, are knowing what they're getting into. Can you let everybody yeah. know where the, there's going to be some people that are just listening to the audio version. So I'm sure they'll want to go explore your social media to see some of the pictures and things that we've talked about. Of course, if, if you are listening to the audio version, you can come back to the YouTube version as well, because I will have some photos in yeah. there, but where can people find you online? <laughs> so, um, People can, people can send me a friend request on Dougie Smith, D-O-U-G-I-E, Smith, S-M-I-T-H. Um, so you can uh, send me a friend request on my profile. Um, it is sort of private now, but to be honest, I pretty much post the same stuff out into the groups. They can find me on groups like the AH group, the Advanced Herpetological Husbandry group. They can find me on the Giant Leaps and Giant Husbandry group, which is a sister of that group. Uh, for particular species that I keep, you will find me on reticulated python groups, such as the Retech Nation and reticulated python enthusiasts. You will find me on the likes of Reptiles UK. Um, you will find me on some of the monitor uh, groups as well, like some of, some of the good monitor groups are like the custom monitor enclosures uh, group. Um, for our business page, you, know, you will see our animals on that too. Um, and you can search us on Facebook for our business page, which is Jurassic Art. Um, the only difference sounds like Jurassic Park. The only difference is instead of park, it's ARK. So Jurassic Arc Encounters, NI. At, uh, you'll find us on that there, obviously, on Facebook. Um, by typing that in as well, you will find us on uh, Instagram as well, under that too. And as I say, it just gives people a chance then to uh, keep up with our animals, because obviously we have quite an array, a nice collection, a collection that I'm quite proud of. To be honest, um, and I don't often say that, but I, I am pretty, pretty, pretty proud and pretty happy with the animals that we do keep. Um, and as I say, all our animals are great animals. You know, they're a credit to share our lives with. Uh, it, it makes it even better for me that I get to do it with my family. Um, you know, because I have a very, very supportive wife. To be fair, uh, it's not easy to you know be with somebody that has animals, but to actually sort of give up your life a wee bit and put up with the amount of animals that we do have. Uh, I mean, this is a way of life. There's no two ways about it. You know, being surrounded by this many animals, it is effectively a small zoo. Um, although I appreciate that zoos have a lot more and there's a lot more work. But, you know, to be fair, having this amount of animals, uh, you know, in a domestic setting, it, it is a way of life. It, it's not just something you decide to do or something you just think, oh, yeah, I'll just do this. And, you know, in a year's time, maybe not. You know, it is it is how we do things. We've been doing things yes now for a long time. And every day is always animal related. You always have stuff to do with animals, feeding, cleaning, uh, that sort of thing. So, you know, the people that do want to have a collection or do want to get into certain species, particularly the giant species, just know that when you are doing them, those little animals, whether the size of the wee water monitors or whether they are the size of your small reticulated pythons, Burmese, anacondas, stuff like that, you know, those animals, when you get them, they are a commitment. You know, they are a living, breathing being. Uh, they do grow. And as they grow, you know, they are still reliant. They're not wild. They are reliant on you to care for them, provide the best that you can and the upkeep um, in the hope that you don't pass them from pillar to post and uh, move them on. You know, try and sort of see them out and make sure you do your research and knowledge first. I'm always happy if people, I'm not the most knowledgeable person out there. I don't claim to be, but I'm always quite honest and quite factual and quite blunt. So, you know, I'm always happy for people as well to, you know, give me a shout or hit me up on Facebook or comment on one of my posts and uh, I'm always happy to try and give you know, honest advice about what it is like to actually, you know, share your life with these animals, you know, the good and the bad, because let's face it, not every day is daffodil daydreams, as uh, <laughs> the same go, you know, it's not always great day, you know, you have bad days too, 
with keeping a lot of animals, you get animals that die. It happens. It doesn't get any easier. You know, throughout my years of keeping, I have lost animals, never to negligence or never to anything bad. Obviously, I do a lot of cohabs. I've never lost an animal, thankfully, ever in a cohab. I always research my cohabs. People may not always agree with them. People are a wee bit skeptical about an alligator snapping turtle and with a water monitor. I done my own research on it. I researched enough that I was happy and confident. Those animals are together now two months, not one issue being displayed between them whatsoever. So in this, I would always say to people, as you're moving forward in this hobby, a couple of things, share, educate, and inspire with your colleagues and your peers. Don't hold anything back. Share the good times and the bad times and the good information and the bad information. Uh, try and educate others a little bit on what works for you and what you find hasn't worked. Um, you know, get out there. You know, all my photos are taken on my phone. Like I'm just sitting talking to you now. That's what I take my photos on. It's not a fancy camera. It's not nothing. It's just a camera on my phone, on my Huawei. That's it. Um, so get out there. Take pictures off your animals. You know, show your animals off in a good light. You know, when you're taking pictures of them, don't take a picture of an animal that's cramped in a viv and the viv looks an absolute mess. That image is going out of the social media. That image is being seen by X amount of people. It's also being seen by people that don't want us to keep these animals. You know, if we show animals in a bad light, how we keep them, all we're doing is basically reaping what we sow when people then start to give positive lists or ban animals because we look like idiots and we can't keep them right. You know, many of you good private keepers out there, be happy, be proud of what you do, and, you know, share, and share the animals in a good positive light, and, you know, help each other, and don't put ourselves up on pedestals. We're all equal to each other. I am no better than everybody else. I'm no better than you. You know, I have nice enclosures. I'm proud of them. Likewise, others could do exactly the same and others could do better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can do better. That is really, really well said. Great advice. And like you said, it's a, it is a lifelong commitment. And I think you've highlighted that perfectly. And this was a great conversation. I think there's a ton of information here for people. And and I think there's a lot for people to learn from just how you keep. I love the way you keep and I can't wait to kind of see it evolve. And hopefully we can get you on YouTube at some point too. So people can see that that grow as you go through it. So Dougie, thank you for doing the episode of podcast. We'll have to have you back on again at some point in the future. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks again. All right. That is the end of that episode. Dougie, thank you so much for stopping by and sharing all of your valuable information. Like I said through the intro, it's always questionable whether or not these types of species, these giant species should be as available as they are in the hobby. And I think having someone like yourself out there showing how to do it properly is so beneficial. As I said throughout the episode, it's beneficial for someone that actually wants to get into it because they know they have a great example to follow. And it's also people, it's great for people who are on the edge of wondering if they should do it. And then they see the amount of work and the expense that goes into it and they go, okay, this is not for me. It sounded like a great idea at the time, but now that I've seen somebody do it, it's too much work. And and I think that's a really highly valuable information for both ends of the spectrum so thank you so much if you're looking for more information on Dougie's work make sure you check out the show notes I have links to all his pages there the Facebook pages as well as his Instagram page thank you to everyone who is supporting me through Patreon at patreon.com slash animals at home if you want to join us you can do that there thank you so much to Custom Reptile Habitats for sponsoring this episode of the podcast as always affiliate links are in the show notes and the YouTube description and I think that's all I have to say. I felt like there was something else, but it's slipping my mind. For those of you who have been leaving reviews and ratings on either the Apple Podcasting app or the Spotify app, thank you so much. I do really appreciate that. If you've been sharing it on Instagram, many of you do that every single week. That is greatly appreciated as well. And I will catch you guys next week.